Hello, everybody. This is C.B. Bowman. How are you today? Let me try moving my camera around so you can see me better. <gasps> there you go. Look, we're, we're having some technical difficulty for some strange reason today. We did test this um, with my having two guests on, which you know normally I have only one. Um, but today we have two special guests that have written an incredible book called, can you see it? Oops, Inclusive Leadership, Global Impact. Mm -hmm. And I really want you to hear them. They're having trouble with the mic. So let's see if we don't, I didn't want to lose you. I didn't want you to think we weren't going to be on today. By the way, we've discovered a secret. We will be on every Tuesday now. And if we don't have a special guest, which will be rare because I just found out this morning, we'll book to April. Can you believe I'm so popular? Oh my gosh. It's so it's no, it's all about you all. It's terrific. You know, we are actually sort of rebranding the show. It's still called Challenges of the C-Suite, but our emphasis is on the courage to lead. So with that, hi, Julie. I see Julie just logged in and Nicole logged in. Let's see if we can get some voice going. We could see everybody, but we're having challenges with the voice. Uh, Cheryl, do you want to try speaking? Hello. Hello, everyone. Yeah, no, no me? voice. Don't look. OK, I'll um, try it again. Ernie, do you want to try speaking? <clears throat> sure. Can you hear me? No voice. Okay, let me see if I can call my IT person and see if it'll work. Um, hold on. Let me send her a text message because my phone is updating. You know, guys, this technical stuff is unbelievable. Uh, Okay, I've sent her SOS, and I am also going to try calling her, even though my oh, my phone is down, because it's updating. Uh, so let's hope that she picks it up. Uh, John, you said you can hear both. So you can hear the speakers. Hi, Jose. You can hear them, but I can't. Now, what's up with that? All right, let's just go to audio and see if it's now i am showing that my audio is working i don't know what's causing this i'm stumped everyone let me um let me try unpinging um because i remember carlos said to me make sure that i don't have any linkedins open that could affect it. So I'm closing everything down. And let me come back to you. Oh, I think I know what I did wrong. Let's try this again. Cheryl, can you speak? Cheryl? Hello. Hello. How are you? Hello, how are you? Yes. Hi there. How are you? Okay. Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. It was my fault. How are you? Yes. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. 
Can you Can hear, you me? hear me? Yes. This is, guys, this is like that telephone ad. Can you hear me now? Okay. It looks like Ernie, can, can you hear me now? Yes. <laughs> Ernie, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you both fine. Okay. We're right, ready to go. Let me just send Paul a note, tell her. I think CB is just really, CB, it's really just, um, it's really uh, not good, the, the quality. Oh, it's real staticky. All right, I don't. Uh, let's try one other thing. Uh, in settings, let's go to auto, and you tell me. Uh, I hear you now. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. I didn't okay, do it. It's better now. All right. Well, let's try to rock it out. <clears throat> All right. Okay. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> you know, it is a riot working with technology. <laughs> you just have to well, laugh. You all the time. <laughs> and press buttons. <laughs> so, um, Okay, Julie, thank you for letting us know. Nicole, thank you. Jose, John, everybody. All right. Oh, I love you guys for telling me. Okay, we're ready to rock this out. I have two amazing guests. You know, there are times when we talk about what's going on in the C-suite, and then there are times when we talk about DEI. Today, we're going to talk about both, right, as a blend, a mix. And I have two brilliant people, but you know what? I told them, here's the secret. I tell them, okay, we know you're brilliant. I hear the mind, but you have to be funny too. Cause on CB show, you've got to bring it all, right? So <clears throat> their book, it's, it's a heavy duty book, but it's an easy read. Have I got it in front of the camera, correct? <clears throat> Looks good. called Inclusive Leadership Global Impact. So first, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, and then let's dive in to talk about why are you writing this book? Okay. First, ladies first, Cheryl, please introduce yourself. You want me to do that now? Yes. I think you're frozen. Uh-oh. Well, just work through it. Just pretend I'm unfrozen. I can try. Okay. Introduce yourself. Cheryl? Okay. I'm totally frozen on her side. Ernest? Ernie? Can sure. you introduce yourself first? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And um, I hope Cheryl can get unfrozen because she's the co-author uh, and um, co-mastermind behind this book. So we're going to need her in the process. Um, so my name is Ernie Gundling. Uh, I'm a managing partner at Aperion Global and one of the co-founders of the company. We've been around for 30 years and we help uh, clients that are doing work uh, globally, either 
in the intercultural space or in the world of DEI, uh, we help them to globalize their efforts. And it's been a, a long journey to, to get to where we are today. Personally, I lived in Japan for many years, as well as in Europe and in Latin America, and um, learned a lot of my lessons the hard way um, from mistakes that I personally <laughs> have made and, and hopefully not repeated too often. Um, but it's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you, CB. I appreciate the invitation and uh, looking forward to having this conversation about inclusive leadership and global impact. And, and we think it's a very important subject because so many companies are globalizing their DEI efforts. And we don't want to um, unintentionally engage in cultural imperialism by exporting a, a U.S.-based view of DEI that's based on U.S. assumptions uh, we we want to be able to see through the lens of each country and the real uh, diversity that exists in each country and its own inclusion issues. So that's what we're all about here. So, Ernie, you just took took away the part that I was going to talk about. But, <laughs> but, however, I heard some interesting tidbits in there. I want to find out what mistakes you made so that we <laughs> don't repeat them. <laughs> so you can help us out here because we're such a global world. But first, let's hear from Cheryl. If Cheryl has me unfrozen, tell us about yourself, Cheryl. I think she still has me frozen. Are you ready? Yes. Can, can you hear me now? Okay. Well, thank you. I hope I don't keep going in and out. Apologies, everyone. Yes, my name is Cheryl Williams, and welcome to our, to our conversation today. I am a, uh, I'm considered a practicing cultural anthropologist. Uh, corporate anthropologists, uh, some say. I've spent uh, the, my first 20 years of my profession was in human resources, uh, global HR. Uh, I had the opportunity to do that. And the second 20 years of my life, I keep putting my life in 20-year chunks. I was a university professor here in Southern California, where I live, originally from Indiana, but here I am now in SoCal. And the last couple of years since I retired as a university, I've been continuing able to to partner with my dear friend, Ernie, like that in writing books and trying to pass along some of uh, the lessons we've had. I've had the opportunity to live or work in a little over 80 countries. And CB, my area within DEI uh, B is really working at the grounded level of theory, you know, really social justice and you know, like that. The fact that it's the right business thing to do is, is kind of like icing on the cake or we could reverse it because to me, it's really about the people. Uh, and uh, during the show, I might share a couple of the stories. I've had the opportunity to live and work deep in the Amazon jungle when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, uh, studying with the uh, African tribes there. I've uh, spent a lot of time in Africa and more in the tribal areas. And I have just really, this is my passion. It's my hobby. It's my work. It's my dedication is to bringing diversity, inclusion, equity, and creating belonging to all. So thank you once again for letting me join you today. Thank you. And I see callers on in case we get into a IT boggle. So everybody, I, I want to introduce Carla Hansen. Carla is, God, she's my lifesaver. She's my lifeline. Um, she's a dear friend. I know her, her husband, her mom, her dad, her children, and so on. And her husband's mom and dad. So um, I couldn't do what I do without her. Uh, she also is responsible for our overall IT and 
bookkeeping for CB and companies. <laughs> so, I'm glad she's here. I feel safer now. <laughs> so um, first, let's talk about, and I'm going to ask you to try to keep your answers short, not too short, but that, I've never asked that question, but that's because both of you have such a wealth of knowledge. I want to get in as much as possible, right? So I want to ask Cheryl about being in the Amazon. I want to ask Ernie about the mistakes he's made. I want to ask about the book, why the book. I want to ask, why is it that you said in your book, inclusive leadership instead of DEI leadership? And I want to talk about the differences between what's happening here in the United States versus Europe. And why does Europe watch us when they have different problems? It's, that's perplexing to me. And don't, don't worry about coughing. I'll be blowing my nose and sneezing because my allergies are rampant. And my wonderful audience puts up with me. <laughs> you know? It's just, it's real life. And that's how we approach it here. So first, Ernie, and Cheryl, why the book? Cheryl, you wanna um, make a start and I, I can go with that? Yes, I, I will make a start and then Ernie can uh, can add, multiply, subtract, and divide from what I say. Um, you know, I have been so fortunate. Some people might even say blessed, the term, to really have had opportunities that someone coming out of Gary, Indiana, uh, with the schools, you know, like that, that were really good. Not so much now, they're, they're untold. But um, to have this experience base that I've learned, and there's not a lot of people that kind of look like me, African-American, female, baby boomers in particular, that really, uh, in my opinion, um, has, um, has that experience base. And I'm, that's not a good or bad thing. It's just different. So I'm wanting to, when I left the university from teaching, which I love, and I certainly miss my students, you know, I had met this, I met Ernie years ago. We've been, we've, we've known each other. I said, you know, how can I, uh, what will my next 20 look like? And somehow being able to pass along my stories, pass along my lessons, uh, because one of the things as an anthropologist you learn is to tell stories. And so that's one of the things that what I wanted to put in the book and, and, to, and to write about it. So you can see the book has a lot of stories in it because that's how you really can wrap your arms about what diversity really means. Because sometimes they just in the, in the U.S. we think it's just race, but diversity is way more than that. What it means to even be included and made someone feel that way. So that's why um, Ernie and I kind of put our heads together and, and we wrote, this is actually our second book that we wrote together. This one's really concentrating on the global impact of what that means. Ernie, so, what would you, what, uh, what did so I mean? I just want to ask a few questions first. When I, okay, I'm totally naive. Uh, when I think of anthropology, I think about the show on TV, Bones, basically. You know, you're digging and you're finding bones or you're solving mysteries. Uh, I remember taking a course in anthropology at the new school. I didn't think of it, in we thought about it in terms of cultural differences. We didn't think about it in terms of mm -hmm. diversity, equity, equality, inclusion. 
how do you make the leap from deep digging up bones and the cultural side? <laughs> okay. Talking about society. Okay. <laughs> the area of social science that you're talking about is probably best archaeology, which is ah. where you're really getting into the things that people had. That's the utensils, the bones, the tools. And then an anthropologist will come in and talk to you about what were those people like that were handling something that looked like this? You know, what did it mean? And so the people and the cultural anthropology really drills deep. And what is it about an individual, a human being that is cultural? Because if you think about it, there's three main buckets that, that we live in. We have a personal bucket, we have our biological buckets, and then we have our cultural buckets. Biology is how we're born. If we're born with a sexual orientation, if we're gay or lesbian, that's how we're born. Our personality, introvert, extrovert, that's something we're born with. But then if we talk about personal things, that's just like, do we like to play, uh, do we like spicy foods? Do we like, you know, that's just our personal thing. Do we like to play cards? But the culturalness are things that comes out of our beliefs, our values, our attitudes, our behaviors, plus shared by generations, you know, over time. So when, and when in the workplace, um, CB, when we are talking about what is cultural, so many times people will say, oh, well, that's a cultural thing. It's yes. not a cultural thing. People who steal or, or murder or do all those bad things has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with culture, mm -hmm. you know, per se, the way I'm talking about it. Obviously, right. you can say your environment you know, and so forth. But so that is why I've dedicated many, many years ago. And the reason why I wanted to uh, really dig deep into the African piece, because there's a lot of black, white concerns to this day issues. What is it about being African, an American, the nationality that's cultural that we, you know, first of all, you don't try to train out and take away someone's culture. You need to try to embrace it. You need to, the communication styles, the nonverbal styles, the rituals connected to it. So my area within cultural anthropology, within corporate is about the, is, is black, you know, the African-American, the black. So that's where I drill deeper is in the race space and then gender. Mm -hmm. I'll pause now and let the, Ernie, you can tell I love this. This is what I do. You like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank, I am thank you for clearing that up because in my mind, they were all mixed together. The anthropology and the archeology span of it all. Because the way that, you know, from my studies and the way we see movies, it's kind of really blended together, right? Yeah. There's no yes, yeah. you know, line of separation. So I appreciate that. Now, Ernie. I was on a, CB, I was on a, I was in Karakou. I was in Karakou, a little remote island in one of the Grenadines. And while I was there doing some uh, anthropology work, I was uh, documenting some of the, some of the uh, African behaviors from the, from Africa. There was a team of archeologists there from just coincidentally from the University of San Francisco. And we met each other. We were kind of like at the bar, you know, that evening they were talking and they invited me to be a part of their study because they were digging up these fossils and digging up these pots and different pieces of, of things. And they wanted me to join them. Say, but Cheryl, what were people doing during this time and flavor? So that was a really good thing of how we married. So I worked about a week with them and I ended up having to leave because they were there for about six months. But that's a really good marriage. I'll never forget that because they would find something and say, but what were they doing with this and why? And was it male or female? Was it good or bad? Was it a weapon or was it not? 
And yes. that's what sometimes to what we know, we just want to share that. And that's where the link is. And I do remember, you know, I worked at the museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York uh, for several years. And so you would go in and you would see all of the diggings, the findings, but the way they were displayed and intertwined with the cultural aspect of those that lived during that period of time. It was fascinating. Um, Ernie, I wanna know, okay, which do I wanna know first? I wanna know why the book? Yeah, sure, so I think Cheryl gave the good answer that in a way for, for each of us, it's sharing our, our life's experience and the experience that we've had through the course of a career. And also, I would say that a primary purpose, we, oh, wait, we wait, know. Wait, Ernie, wait, yeah. Ernie. Okay, I've got to go there. You're a white dude. What experience can you have? Come on now, let's talk. <clears throat> well, I think that's a really good um, question to ask because I think the, the assumption is that if you're a white guy, you don't have much to add to DEI. And yet, if you think about it, you have um, a lot to learn, but not a lot to add. That's the assumption. Yeah, yeah. And yet, if you think about it, um, and I, I run into this sometimes with audiences as well. It's a, a "what are you doing here?" kind of um, a vibe. <laughs> yes, that's why I went there. Let's ask. <laughs> and um, if you think about it, if inclusion doesn't involve everybody, then it's just fundamentally flawed from the beginning. And you're also making assumptions about the person you're talking to. So I have a, you know, a certain face and a certain experience, a certain appearance, but you don't know much about my life experience. You don't know that I've lived in other countries where I felt, you know, excluded um, culturally, linguistically. I felt alone. I felt <laughs> desperate. I felt um, like I <laughs> I had spent way too long learning the language and still couldn't speak it yet. And and then those little victories when you learn the code, not just the, the code of the cultural behaviors, um, gift giving, what you do in a family, what you talk about in the first conversation, but also you, you gradually acquire fluency in the language. Um, and so um, you, you can look at me and make certain assumptions or you know, what we all have to do is we have to look at each other and, and try to not make assumptions and to step back and say, and in fact, the first kind of lesson one about prejudice reduction is how do we get to know the other person as an individual, as a as a personality, as opposed to as a stereotype or as a category? And, you know, one of the great pleasures of working with Cheryl, for example, has been that I think we've gotten to know each other uh, better and better as individuals. And that um has helped a lot. I don't. I don't think of Cheryl in terms of categories anymore. I think of her as a as a person who I enjoy very much working together with. Um, so, is that enough of it? I mean, I can go on about that yes, one. But. No, I love I love your answer, um, and I'm so glad you didn't say. I I think of her as a person, not as a black woman, because that that's you know. <laughs> I was waiting for that, and I was ready to jump. Why did not fall into that one? Um, but now, you know, I, I'm laughing not at you, but with you, because it is so, <clears throat> it's so um, typical of what we do as human beings. Um, I was working with a group of women 
who wanted to move up in the corporate space to sit on board. So they had a specific group with a specific goal. And I said, they said to me, you know, CB, before you came on, we were just discussing what to do about men who want to join us. And I said, well, what's the question? And they said, well, we're women that want to sit on boards. We don't want men in this meeting. And I said, well, who's sitting on the boards now? They said, men. I said, you know, there's an old Italian expression. <laughs> and my husband is Italian, which says, keep your enemies, keep your enemies close, keep your friends closer or something like that. And I said, so if men make up 99% of the boards, don't you want to find out what they know and how they do it so that, you know, we can move in? Because if you keep them in aside, then you don't learn anything. You've got to sit down to the table together and learn together, right? So good answer, Ernie. <laughs> I like that. You get a star. Uh, <laughs> you get a star. <laughs> I haven't gotten in trouble yet. <laughs> so, um, you know, back to your question about the book and why we wrote it. Um, so the, the top where what you showed is the second edition, which we think is much improved. The, the subtitle, the first edition was From Awareness to Action. Mm -hmm. And what we've really focused on is for, for people of goodwill, and there are a lot of them out there who say, you know, inclusion, I, I would like to be more inclusive. Why would I not want to be more inclusive? And isn't that important to my organization? How do you move in in a in a concrete, practical way from inclusion as a broad concept or from all the, the dialogue, much of it unhealthy that we have in this country around uh, race and ethnicity and gender and so forth? How do we move to very practical um, steps in the workplace that would allow us to learn about bias, to build some key skills, to work across different boundaries, to become a champion, to get results. Those are actually the, the five dimensions that we cover in the book that are related to moving from awareness to action. So how can I, as a, as a leader, um, how can I be an actual role model for inclusion and, and for DEI in general, instead of you know, avoiding it or running away from it or checking the box or all, all the different things that, that people can uh, do to, to kind of keep this over in a corner or to stay away from it. Or as an ordinary employee, how can I be, um, how can I run a, a meeting or participate in a meeting in an inclusive way? We know from the, the research on psychological safety that equal airtime is important. Um, so so how can I make sure that Cheryl gets into the conversation? How, how can I make sure that both we, we monitor our own participation and also draw out others? That's something that anybody at any level can do. And that's another part of moving from awareness to action. So that's our, our purpose with the book was giving people some practical ways that they can take those steps to be more inclusive not just in a in a domestic environment, but in a in a global setting as well. Well, speaking of giving Cheryl airtime, <laughs> it Cheryl. Yes. Why why is it we need something special on inclusion? Doesn't diversity in, mean inclusion? Thank you. That's a very good uh, very good question. We get that quite a bit. Diversity by simple definition is simply representation. It's just difference. If you look at the three of us, you know, right now on the screen, we have diversity. 
Um, we don't have to do anything to get diversity. You go to the grocery store tonight, depending on where you live, you're going to find diversity. You, no matter where you live, you're going to find diversity. Even if the race or ethnicity is the same, you're going to find gender, generations, beliefs, faith-based. So diversity is simply that. It has nothing to do with liking the person, respecting the person, valuing someone difference. Inclusion is then what are you doing that can make someone feel like they are included? In other words, you haven't forgot about them. What we were just talking about, just sharing the screen, sharing the time, although it's a little bit more than that, but that's what be included. But then we added recently in the last few years, the term equity is quite popular now because just to be included is not necessarily how I might want to be included in the conversation may be different from you. So we have to have that difference to be equitably comfortable. So that's why equity becomes so important. And really recently, you've heard the term belonging. And that is, what is it that the environment, the context, both parties, all parties are doing to make someone really feel like they belong there? And that's a little bit more even the inclusion. There's a popular little uh, thing where you said diversity is being uh, in just invited to the to the dance and inclusion <laughs> is being asked to dance. But they added on belonging is having the playlist, having your playlist shared, because that and that's kind of important when you think about that. And so that is. Why, now, mm -hmm. Let me let me just interrupt you in that scenario. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the person who's asked to dance, if they want to dance, does that fall under belonging because they feel comfortable? Yes, it's, it's they feel comfortable now. I think I can dance, although for the family and people who know me, that's debatable. So we know that all Black people can't dance. But nevertheless, I like to get out there and have fun. So if I go to a dance, if Ernie invites me to a dance and he takes my hand to dance and then the polka is played. Oh, I love what you just said. Invites you and takes your hand. And takes my hand. Takes my hand conclusion. But then if the polka music starts playing or the chicken dance, that's something I, that doesn't not, not going to make me feel like I belong as much because now I'm going to feel nothing but awkward. Right. Me too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Make it out there and have fun. That's different, but making someone really feel, and that's a really once you feel like you belong, you know you're there. It's hard to just put in words because it has so much uh context driven, you know. It is so much. You mentioned you were married and you're married to an Italian. The first time you may have gone to a family dinner, Thanksgiving or something, at your husband's family, or at that time maybe he was a, a, a boyfriend, as we if I can still use that term. Whether you felt that you were included, but did you feel like you belonged? You have to. I actually, I, 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 I did, because ironically, where I grew up was in an Italian neighborhood. So. You were great, and you like that. I, I've been married a long time to my husband Kenny, and I love my in-laws. But it took a while for me to feel like I belonged, not because they didn't do anything necessarily, but they would tell the inside jokes. They uh, had siblings, six siblings, and I didn't you know, like that. And so there was yes. a, there was a dance that we had to do to where they made me feel like I can get in the conversation, and I knew the little the little acronyms, the little fun things, little desserts, things that I didn't know, you know, about being in that family till now. I still don't know probably some of it, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I like where you're going with this because this sense of belonging. Now, the sense of the of belonging, whose responsibility is it? Is and it? Well, it's both. Okay. I'm, and the reason why I say both is because Ernie is not going to be able to guess what's going on in my mind. But if he's made me feel comfortable, if you allow me to use that, to, that I can ask a question, I can make a comment, I can disagree, I can agree, then that's how we both, in a perfect world, we both are going to be able to do that. So if the if the if the chicken dance music goes on and I say, ooh, I don't know, I don't like that, that I don't know how to dance to that, then they'll they may change it. Or they may say, you know, Cheryl, this is really popular here in my culture this time. Enjoy it. Then I'm gonna like my curiosity. I'll get in there and do it. Yes. So how, would you, how would you respond though? <laughs> it's a question for me. Yes. Uh, okay, chicken dance. Well, I would say I'd be a heck of a lot more comfortable with my granddaughters doing that than I would in a public setting. But that's um, a typical introvert uh, kind of personality. So. <laughs> okay, now now we're moving into introvert versus extrovert. I love it. <laughs> Because that's a whole different layer that you put on, you know. I might be willing to do the chicken dance, but maybe I'll do it at home instead of in <laughs> Okay, so I want to ask Ernie now, what are some of the mistakes that you made that we can learn from? Mm, golly. Uh, which era? Mystery? <laughs> you want early era or more recent era? Or? Uh, let's take a couple from each. <laughs> All right. Well, one that comes to mind is um, within our own company, we were having a succession planning uh, discussion about who should take on a, a key role in Asia Pacific. And we had a couple of candidates that were in front of us, um, you know, both real uh, well qualified and uh, a lot of discussion debate back and forth on our management team about which it might be and then uh, part way through the discussion someone said what about and I'll I'll make up a name here because she'll know who she is anyway um, uh, Jennifer what about Jennifer and and I had the 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 um, uh, let's see, I was trying to do the right thing. Uh, and I said, well, she's just come back from maternity leave. This, this role is going to involve a ton of travel and, and back and forth. It's going to be a really, really excruciating, difficult job. And so maybe we ought to, um, give her a shot at this, you know, a year from now or two years from now. And of course, the, the fundamental mistake I made was I didn't ask Jennifer. <laughs> and turns out she she made it really clear later that um, she had relatives living nearby and she was able and willing to travel. Um, her husband's job was relatively flexible. And so I made the fundamental mistake of, of not asking her of, of assuming, um, you know, from good intentions, I thought, but turned out to be a really bad idea. Um, and I've now I've reflected on this. In fact, now in, 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 uh, indeed, we're trying to help many companies with gender um, advancement in Asia Pacific overall. And this is a key issue because Asia, in Asia Pacific, women tend to be underrepresented 
in management roles relative to the rest of the world. And, you know, kind of going back to the fact that, um, you know, you need all kinds, including men and women involved in these discussions. Guess who's making a lot of the decisions about who goes into management? Well, it's men. Uh, and sometimes we're, we're not fully informed. And um, in fact, you might even you might even say clueless about. Uh, I, I, didn't, I, I was like, oh, that's a nice way of putting it. Not fully informed. OK. And not only that, but um, and I've been convinced by our own research. So we have this GlobeSmart profile that you may be familiar with. A, a lot of companies use it. We've had over three million users now. We've got 40,000 data points from Asia Pacific. And what it shows, for instance, is that women are slightly more risk averse overall uh, on average than men. And you can argue about the reasons for that. There's a great HBR article that says, well, of course, women are more uh, risk averse because they're scrutinized more carefully when they're in management roles. Or maybe it's because it's more common for them to be going into roles like finance or human resources where being cautious, being certainty oriented is a really important part of that role. But for the for the men and, and predominantly male groups that are making these succession planning decisions, thinking about this risk certainty spectrum and realizing that we have to not have a narrow box and be saying to be risk averse is good or to rather to be uh, a risk taker is good, a calculated risk taker is good. And that's one of our competencies. We have to open the box and say, we need some risk, uh, we need some certainty, we need both and we need them integrated together. And therefore, how can we make sure that we're, we're asking women and we're also being fair uh, in a broader sense when we're making these key succession planning decisions because we can train women all day and, and, and women uh, are often trained for leadership development programs in Asia Pacific, but we don't see that moving the needle. And so, what my, and by the way, our company is two thirds women. So I've, I really had to take this to heart. Um, our management team as well. I'm, I'm learning a lot thanks to my uh, female colleagues. And, and so I think that's why this has to, we have to look yeah. at inclusion from a big picture perspective and involve men and women and people of all different colors and ethnicities because we're not gonna open the box if we're looking at it through too narrow a perspective or saying, this is what a, a good leader looks like. And um, let's go with this kind of person because they look a little bit more like what our prior image of a, of a, a terrific leader might've been. You know, um, I'm doing a lot of work in courage right now, um, the courage to lead. And my, my philosophy is that the courage to lead starts with the courage to self-examine and to look at what is it that you need uh, to support you in making the next great leap. And I love the fact that your company is almost predominantly women. <clears throat> that takes courage. <laughs> well, they happen to be really good. <laughs> yeah, well, still. still. And, and that's the point though. Um, a lot of companies, even though women or different genders or whatever, they don't have the courage to invite the brilliance of other minds to join the conversation, right? So Cheryl, I wanna ask you, especially since you've been through the Amazon, that's just insane to me. 
thinking back, what was the greatest time that you needed courage and how did it turn out? What did you use? The greatest time, I, that's actually a very easy one. I was living, I was in the, in the jungle. This was during the two, three years that I was actually living there, collecting my, uh, doing my uh, research. And there's one tribe that's called, um, 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 that's, that's, that's probably more um, remote than others. And this particular tribe doesn't allow um, uh, people that aren't very dark in there. Because if you aren't very dark, they assume you've got white in you. And they call it the Wittiman. And if you have white in you, that means you could be bringing them danger. Because this is still coming over from the slaves, you know, like that, from the, from, the, from, the, from the Dutch colonists and the slave masters or whatever. So I wanted to go Dalme is the name of the uh, of the tribe. So I wanted to go up. So I was on the river, and I gone. I got permission from the paramount chief and all the folks that you need to go through in order to go to these villages. So I'm on the river to go to Dalme, and I brought the appropriate gifts you do for exchange. And I had to stay at the uh, river's edge while the captain came down to the river's edge uh, to, um, to, to, to basically look me over to see if I was worthy to go into their, into their village. I happened to carry, my father was, was, was brown conflict. My father was more brown. My mother was more fair. I used to have to carry a picture of my father so I could show to them that I had African in me. And so they ended up to be make a long story short. It's interesting. They never let me in their village, but the paramount chief, I mean, excuse me, the chief from that, not the paramount, the chief from that village came to me at the edge of the river and we conducted, a, I was, he allowed me to conduct an interview there with, through my interpreter or whatever. And um, because, so it took courage for me, first of all, fear, because, you know, I've also was told that if they don't like you, or if they think you're there to bring them harm, then the land, then, then the law of the jungle takes over, you know, like that. So they, I didn't feel that I was going to be hurt because I had too many people that were with me, but it took courage for me to really want to continue the interview. I have since gone back numerous times to, to, to the Amazon for follow-up research. And I've talked with the same captains. I've still have not gone into their village because to this day, 2022, if you're not a certain complexion, they won't let you in. So it took me courage to still want to continue to, and I'll still go back. God willing, I'll go this year. I'll go back there. And if I can, I'm going to attempt again. Not because it's not because I'm trying to get in to make a, make some weird point because I really want to know what is it about this tribe, this culture that we can learn from them and perhaps they can learn from us to, 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 to make them do it. So, because they're not, by them not letting me or someone like me, do that malaria treatments and uh, now the COVID treatments, you know, like that. We, all these things that normally people can bring into the tribe can't happen because they're, they're not letting you in unless they train, of course, their own people. Then their own people, of course, can go in to do it. So that to me took took some took some courage for the, the chiefs that, were, that believed in me to give me permission to go into this uh, to this area. Wow, that is an amazing story and scary. I mean, it is. There's a Dalme spelled D-A-H-O-M-E-Y. There's a Dalme tribe in Africa that I'm told, I, didn't get a, I haven't gotten there yet, even though I've been to Africa many times, that I'm told is very similar. They're just very remote. Wow. What made you decide that you wanted to examine these two cultures? 
quickly, you know, what it was, CB, is um, I really wanted to know what was it about being African that makes us think, feel, and do differently from others as well as the same? Because if you go to many places, like if you go on a safari or if you go to certain, you have a Hilton where you can stay, you have newspapers. You know, I went a couple places in Africa and they had the, uh, you know, the U.S. News and World Report and Ebony Magazines. And I, so, so how much, so how much is, is African? So I figured I was going to go on to a very remote place. So when I was doing my, uh, my um, investigation into that, I went to Florida State for my PhD, and I was um, the the then he's rest in peace, um, Dr. Jones. He had been studying this particular remote tribe, um, but he hadn't gone down there before, but a couple of times. And so he was able to first say, "Cheryl, you need to study those." And, they, and by then, they were referred to as the Bush Negroes. Now that sounds very offensive, obviously, for here, but they go bush because of the beautiful forest and the negro, you know, like that the beauty of the, the dark skin. Uh, the tribal name, of course, is Saramaka, and they have other tribal names for sure. And, and I was able to visit all six tribes. So I wanted to go to a place where I can, where it wouldn't have been as influenced by other outside cultures. And in 1993, the first time I landed in the middle of the jungle, it was. I was the first person, most of the places that looked like me. And first of all, an outsider. And then second, a person that they, they thought I was mixed, mixed race or whatever, you know, that. But I, to this day, I have very good friends over there, very good friends over there. Mm-hmm. And being of mixed race was also offensive to them? It's not offensive. It's just, can they trust me? It's all ah. about trust because, you know, it, that's what it was about. And once they realized they could trust, because, mm-hmm. you know, in my world, I would explain to them, you know, it's not about the color of your skin today, you know, because people come packaged and believe and do things different ways, you know, like that. So it's not just your skin color that determines someone's trustworthiness or who to trust. Fascinating. Wow. Okay, Ernie, tell us another time where you could have done something differently (laughs) more recently. Um, Well, you know, um, this this book project, for instance, um, I could have done it. Uh, I could have gone off and tried to write it um, solo. I could have tried to undertake this sort of project um, with someone that I had known well for 20 years. But I had a chance to meet Cheryl, and it occurred to me that wouldn't it be better? I mean, you think of all the, the things that are wrong in the world and all the things that are wrong in our own country and crazy talk of civil war and, and um, pe- people just have no idea what sort of apocalyptic event a civil war would be. And yet they get bandied about, you know, as if it's a realistic possibility. And, and so it felt like it would be a better partnership uh, would be a better product if if I would try to learn about Cheryl and her world and <laughs> her stories. And by the way, she's got great stories about her own personal life experience, even in the United States and her, her family's extended experience. And and to learn through that, um, what what it, I'm I'm not going to have the life experience of a black person, obviously, but at least to learn vicariously about that. 
and then to try to, to, to match it with my own experience living abroad in various different places and to think about what's common and what's not common um, and, and how can we put it all together in a way that's useful for people. And so um, I, I think it would have been a big mistake to try to, to go off and do this project in another way. And I'm just so happy that, that Cheryl and I have been able to partner on this because I feel like I've learned a lot from her and um, you know, hopefully the, the feeling has been mutual. mutual. Okay, tell me about time when it took when you took courage to a different level and had and what were the results? Uh, all right. <laughs> um, so um, in my very first job out of college, I was. Um, I thought I was destined for a political career. Um, had all, you know, I checked all the boxes as far as, uh, you know, schools and education and uh, contacts and so on. And I was working with, uh, in uh, a job uh, for a public interest group related to the, the legislature here in California and Sacramento with a guy who was working on the, the bottle bill. I think he's long gone, so I, I won't uh, disparage his memory, but, he was working on a great recycling bill. That was, this is in the days before recycling was happening and we were trying to make it happen. And so I believed in the cause, but uh, this this state Senator was a really unpleasant and, and egotistical individual. And I thought, my goodness, he's he's really getting in his own way. And, and how about me? Am I getting in my own way? Uh, and so I decided at that point to step off that, that Kind of track of um, rising upward in the in the world, and you know perhaps going into to politics and that that direction in life to become a Buddhist monk, uh, and so I did that for five um, long, really good, rich years. Some of my best friends are Buddhists. <laughs> wow! And, uh, spent time uh, in a monastic setting, both in the United States and also in Japan. You know, it's really cold in the morning and it's really uh, you, they don't heat the the monastery when the snow is falling and you're you're sitting there looking at the wall or depending on the tradition sometimes you you're staring at the wall or you're staring out and so i spent a lot of time staring and what you have to go through is a lot of movies about yourself and many of them are bad movies you know or, or really boring movies or unpleasant movies and so you get used to um both having a sense of, of, of um, perspective on yourself and your own folly, you know, we call it greed, hate, and delusion. Everybody's got that, and you realize you've got your own particular admixture of it. But then also, you have this willingness to have your mind blown um, in a good way. So, so once you can clear away some of the the clutter, one of the one of the jokes about. Um, Buddhism is behind the screen in back of you. There's a huge pile of junk, and uh, it, it doesn't doesn't happen to be the case for this particular screen because I, I <laughs> but um, we've all got that. And so, so the question then is, um, what? How can you invite the unexpected? How can you see what you never saw or wouldn't have seen before? So, so for instance, in in the process of doing the research for this book. I learned that in Africa, there's more genetic diversity than between Europe and China. 
So think about that for a minute. We we assume in this country that we know what it means to be black or it means to be white, but but actually there's this incredible ethnic diversity in Africa, 2,000 languages, 3,000 plus ethnic groups, and more genetic diversity, not to mention cultural diversity, than between Europe and China. In fact, there was historically more interaction between uh, East and West across Asia to Europe than within many parts of Africa because of the, the geographical separation. And Africa is a really big place. And so that's a fascinating, mind-blowing statistic. And it, and it gets you thinking about, well, even within the Black community and even within the Black community in the U.S. And by the way, another related experience in graduate school, I went and, and taught Japanese at Kenwood High School on the south side of Chicago. What? Uh, a predominantly Black uh, classroom. <laughs> So, so that that took some courage. Yeah. I didn't realize until later how much courage was involved. <laughs> I, I, I do want to say to you that listening to you and being a courage specialist, that I need to open up the definition of courage to include a little bit of insanity. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Between the two of you, oh my goodness. <laughs> It defines courage in a different way altogether. Hey, I want to ask you, gosh, we're running out of time, but I wanted to dive more. So you just have to come back. I want to dive more into the book, but I want you to please give us, give us your greatest, each of you, your greatest takeaway in putting this book together for us. My greatest takeaway is there really are far more similarities along what people value and how people want to be respected. Now, the route to do that is very different. But at the end of that is people just want to be, you know, they want a sense of family and safety and, and healthiness. So what I found when we look into this, when we, when we examine and particularly the three uh, global cultures and Madeep, is that's what it's about. So if we simply learn how to how to show that because you can't see trust i have to show it to you you, know, you can't I mean, you can't see it in my mind so to me that was probably one of the uh some of the some of the best highlights i would think and it's lots of stories and then actually this is also used as a textbook in some universities you know, like that so because it has uh an academic feel to it as well both i love i love what you just said i never thought about the, that is that you have to see trust yeah, that's very powerful. Yeah, very powerful. You know, um, and, and the combination of valued and trust and be respected. Uh, a dear friend of ours, uh, of Ernie's and mine, I, I, you may know her too, Mercedes Martin. Yeah, yes, I know Mercedes. Yeah, her one of her relatives is a member of the Proud Boys. So imagine Thanksgiving dinner there. Um, and for our audience, Mercedes is a black Cuban. And so she was talking to us about her opportunity to interview her cousin who's part of the Proud Boys. And she said to me, you know, said to us, it occurred to me that they are no different than the rest of us. Fundamentally, the reason why they exist is to be heard respected and valued. 
And I thought, wow, that's a statement and a half. But when you stop and think about it, isn't it true that that's what everybody wants mm -hmm. is to be heard? It doesn't mean that you have to agree with a person. It means that you listen and have some comfortable dialogue where both parties can learn. Mm -hmm. Ernie, what is the most valuable or the most impactful thing that you learned writing this book? Well, in a way, it, it reaffirmed my sense of um, mission and I think what our the core purpose of our organization is self-understanding, really trying to understand the other person and then bridge building in between. And so that I think that mission is valuable for all of us and, and each of us can do that in different ways. You do it through your interviews, um, I'm sure quite uh, quite well. And, and that's... Uh, an outcome of it. But if you look across the world, you can find in any society, <clears throat> there are people who are marginalized for, for various reasons, most of them incomprehensible to outsiders. But, you know, we have our own marginalization issues here in the U.S. But if you look through a local lens in Nigeria, it's, it's ethnicity, it's religion. In India, it's caste, it's gender. And if we if we have the the courage and the integrity and the open-mindedness, the, the willingness to have our own minds blown, you know, goes goes back to all that sitting around that I did. But if, if you have that, the, the willingness to look, you can find uh, anywhere there are um, marginalized folks. And there's a, there's a way if you tap into local institutions and local people of good, um, good heart and good, uh, good spirit that, you can find ways to be more inclusive in any environment in local terms while still having a, a global umbrella and a global purpose or mission to your efforts. So it, it both gives me heart to know that that kind of mission can be shared. And at the same time, it's somewhat daunting to know that we, we really have to keep our minds open and to learn and not to assume going into another environment, even even the UK is is different because um, the, the mix of minorities is different. You have um, blacks primarily from the Caribbean and and a larger Asian minority that are our immigrants came in after World War II and the labor shortage. And and so the, the motto for many um, minorities within the UK is we are here because you were there. You were calling us. You came to our country, and then you invited us back. And so we're here because you were there. And and so that's it's similar. Even the UK is similar, but different from the US because they don't have the long history of slavery that we do. That you know this terrible institution of slavery that we do in the US. And so, so, so there there are areas of overlap, and yet I think it's a noble mission to try to figure out what is marginalization in this context and what can we do about it in a way that has real integrity of things, seeing things through a, a local lens? What about people, this is for both of you, what about people that are afraid of losing their identity by accepting others? How can we help them? I mean, is it, is it a truism that they lose their identity? You know, um, theory would say you don't lose your identity. You can build upon it. 
because you are who you are and who you choose to identify as. And there's two ways we have identities. We have acquired and we have given. The given identities are what you're born with. You can't really do much about that. Your acquired identities is if you're a Democrat or Republican or independent, if you're an academic or not. So, <clears throat> so in the in the uh, in the uh, acquired ones, it can shift and change. I mean, and it, and it will over time because culture is dynamic. And the person Cheryl was back in 1950s, 60s, 70s, hopefully is not the Cheryl of 2022 because life has given me experiences. So your, my identity, how I identify has only been enhanced. Now, I was really fortunate growing up with a family that was very open and very mind, open-minded, very much so, very inclusive. They didn't know those words, of course. Uh, so I didn't have to struggle with that. But I've had friends who've said, you know, my father or mother did very racist things, did very sexist things. But now here we are in 2022, and I've realized that that's not the right way to go. So, um, so I would say to them, you know, like that. Yeah, Cheryl, and those people that you're talking about, do they feel a loss of self? Some might, but that would be such a personal decision. It's not, in my opinion, this is an opinion now, someone that feels that they um, are losing their sense of self and being white, being part of the the, 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 the majority being part of the power configuration, having privilege that you hear us talk a lot. If that's, if that's how they're feeling, that's a very personal thing. And I would simply say to that individual, you know, be curious, open-minded. And I would try to somehow, if there was a curiosity pill, I could give them, I would, because, and, and, and to, to just see, to be open-minded, because if they're not going to change their mindset, then it's not much another individual can do. It's kind of like someone who's an alcoholic and addictive. If they don't recognize that they've got a problem, it's not going to really help. That's kind of my, and it's real personal to me though. So that's a really good question. Thanks for asking because I work a lot with personal and social identities. And um, so that's my take. I want to make sure Ernie though can give his take. I apologize for monopolizing. <laughs> you got time CB? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, um, we, we have a lot of um, dialogue even in our, our political discussions in this country about the dynamic between fear and hope. And if you think of what those, those two emotions do to us, um, fear makes us clench and, and hold on and, and attach and think we're going to lose something. And hope makes us, it's, it's tied into that curiosity that Cheryl was talking about. And and, and a, an openness, a willingness to say, well, my identity, so what? You know, it might expand and it might be better <laughs> if, if, if I learn something new. And, and we've got a lot of fancy words in the corporate world, like growth mindset, for instance, that are, are linked to hope and are linked to um, saying we can, we can learn and become better people and and it's infectious, you know. If you can if you can demonstrate that curiosity yourself, or if we can do it with the three of us, then others are going to say, "Well, what if I'm I'm going into um, India or or China and I'm trying to develop a DEI effort, and and how can I link that with the, the hope, the aspirations of the people who are." in that location who are on that site and then you get into a you know a growth mindset a more expansive mode and i think all kinds of things good things can happen and you can find 
also unexpected similarities that um, you just never, never would have dreamed were there. So, so I, I think it's a matter of um, it, your, your identity can um, be something that you cling to, especially if you feel threatened, or it can be something that you're, you're open to expanding. And, you know, there's some wonderful discussions of how even in prison, a dialogue between a, a black prisoner and a white prisoner can, can um, result in a, in a, an awakening for both of them about these clenched views that they'd had for so long um, that now um, they released and have a new, new lease on life themselves, even, even from behind prison bars. So I want to ask both of you this. Does it mean if, if you're in conversation with somebody, you, you mentioned open to expanding. Does open to expanding mean agreement? You want to go first, Ernie? And I always go first, or I can. See, I oh, say the tough questions to the end. That's fine. <laughs> um, you want me to go, or would you prefer to go? Either way is fine. You can go. All right. Well, agreement, that's kind of boring. You know, if we, if we agree on everything, um, then that, that borders on um, groupthink, right? So one of the big questions, you know, why, why DEI? Cheryl mentioned that social justice is, uh, is a key reason and is, um, you know, I think we have some, some towering examples even in our own um, country, in our own society, in our own experience. But um, there's also innovation out there. And how can your team possibly innovate if you've got groupthink going on? You know, there's that famous ASH experiment from 50 years ago, and people have raised questions about it and so on. But if, if, if it's a, a so-called vision experiment and three other people say that that this bar is visibly shorter or longer than the other bar um, that that actually three quarters of the people who are go through the experiment at least once and and a third who go through um, uh, consistently say they agree with the majority even though their their eyes are telling them that the other three people are wrong right and so how can you possibly innovate if you're if you're if you're involved in this group think um, and you're not able to, you know what another of your guests on psychological safety, um, uh, Tim uh, anyway called Tim Clark, Doctor Clark, Tim, Tim Clark, that's right, the, the wonderful book on psychological safety calls challenging the status quo. How can you possibly challenge the status quo if if you all agree with each other? So so even my uh, by the way white male business partner, we're as different as day and night. We disagree constantly. And that's what I value in him is he'll tell me that I'm <laughs> I'm full of it and and that that I'm wrong and and how could you possibly think this way? And I'll do the same back. And and that's the spark, you know, that's the gist of where you start. Now of course you eventually need to not only not only diverge, but you gotta converge and align and have priorities and budgets and get stuff done. Uh, but but I think the spark of creativity comes from disagreement. So so who would not want to do that? Yeah, I think the whole thing about losing one's identity comes from a fear that you you have to agree, mm -hmm. right? Cheryl, what say you about this? 
I was going to, first of all, I completely agree with what Ernie was going to say, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You know, which is scary. I, know, I don't always agree with Ernie and he doesn't always agree with me, but, um, you know, I seek difference and enjoy and embrace disagreement, not conflict. I'm actually a conflict avoidance. I'm not afraid of it, but you know, that's a little, that's different because I have a heightened level of curiosity. And it's only through peeling back what we're disagreeing on that I can learn. Now, if it's an emotional mm. thing, then that's the emotion. I just kind of that people are entitled, obviously, to their emotions. But it's but if it's a way people are viewing something, understanding something, you know, interpreting something, and it's different from how I've done, I mean, I seek it out. I mean, I think it's I think it's wonderful. Matter of fact, I've even said things, but don't disagree with me. What do you think? You know, because I, I'm I seek it. So I would even, so that's very much so but, uh, what I would do. And um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause it at that. So yeah, I, I just, uh, oh, I was going to mention, there is a wonderful little theory called developmental model of intercultural sensitivity. And on this grid, you know, that came to us from Dr. Bennett, it says to us that, you know, in, in, in integration is one of the things we do after we accept someone's difference, we need to be able to integrate it to our own lives. And so once I accept you disagree, agree, you know, whatever, how do I then take what I've learned from you that was that was wrapped in disagreement to be part of, you know, now I know these things. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I love that. Yeah. Hey, we've got a question for Jerome Saunders. The motivation for energizing DEIB for the corporate world is often increased profits. Oh, I want to talk about that. And expanding markets, not the evolution of humanity. Is there not a disconnect between what we are learning in corporate life and what we are able to apply to changing human behavior in the larger society? I totally agree, Jerome. That I think is a slippery slope. You know, I interviewed, um, um, God, her name is escaping me. She's with Bank of America. And she made her case for DEI on profits. And it made it made absolute sense. But the question I think is, it depends on the environment, right? Whatever way you can get this to work, that's lawful. Um, seems to be the way that works best, if that makes sense. But there is still the prevailing question of, do most corporations, will they only move the needle if it's related to profits and earnings? You know, I'll take a stab at that first. Many will. Many look at this as the bottom line, is it going to move the money? Back in the olden days of affirmative action, I call it the olden days, when people would say, well, I'll hire who I need to hire because I've got a federal contract. And that was so not the right reason to do any of that. You hire based on competency. So we have more today, more quantitative studies that we know connect to productivity and we know productivity connects to making money. So engagement studies, we can call them, you know, like that, uh, to, that's that's helpful. One of my clients is sports entertainment. I have a big major sports entertainment um, um, uh, team here. If I were to call the name, I'll be mindful and and not. Um, That 
makes a ton of money you know, like that, and for other investments and other things. But the senior leadership who I just have so much respect for made the decision, drew the line in the sand after the George Floyd murder and said, we're going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Now, granted, they have fans coming into the into the location and they have all this and that. But this is a company that didn't have to do this, but but decided to put the humane side to it over the profit side. And my and I have other clients has done that too, major clients. I have a feeling and maybe this is my want, Jerome, that the more people connect and see where people really is your 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 biggest asset you know we've talked about it but really is your biggest asset i think the more they're going to recognize that having a diverse having an inclusive having an equitable making people feel like they belong is important and the last thing i'll say before that is if you look at just the numbers white people aren't having babies in europe black people and asians and native americans are having or not native americans much are having babies so if you look at just studies of who's being born you like that i have a little, a little a presentation i've done you're gonna have to reach out to people who are across the spectrum of how of what we look like just to be able to have a hi hiring people ernie mm. <laughs> <clears throat> well i i don't don't think it's an either or i think it's a both and and <clears throat> i'm mindful of one of the many stories that uh cheryl shared from her own experience she has a <clears throat> a relative who um, was appointed to <clears throat> finally get an office on the the top floor of the building in the <clears throat> in the executive suite and and uh, was in there uh, kind of a maybe a little bit like me a, a little bit sparse in terms of decoration. <laughs> she finally helped him get a, a house plan in there because uh, she was appalled. Uh, yeah, but he was sitting at his desk and people were going by back and forth on the the elevator and and no he you know he thought wow it's kind of uh, great I've, I've been appointed to this no new role why is nobody stepping in to say hello then he talks to him later and it turns out that they had assumed <clears throat> that he was from it uh that he was in there setting up the office for the person who would look like a real executive <laughs> and, and would um you know eventually come to occupy that place so, so what does that story tell us? Is that social justice? Is that bottom line? Well, it's, it's both. If you have a really talented individual who's maybe got a little bit of imposter syndrome anyway, you know, what am, what am I doing here? Is it okay for me to be here? Uh, this is the, after all this floor that I haven't spent a whole lot of time on and, and all, all these, uh, you know, highbrow folks around me. So, so do I belong here? And if that's reinforced, by the conduct of people who have this confirmation bias of well doesn't look like what we think of as an executive and therefore is probably not and so why should i say hello just the it guy um sorry sorry to the whole it for profession about that <laughs> another mistake already but so so if we want to leverage the talent that we have in the organization both because it's the right thing to do and also because we want to have the right people in the executive team, then then DEI is absolutely necessary to retell that story and to say, well, the, the CEO actually was gone that week, but came back uh, from a business trip and, 
and said, this is our new executive and and uh, I want you to know how capable he is and what his record is and what a great part of the team he is. Cheryl, do you want to share who this yeah. person was? Yes, I, I want to Actually, it's my son. <laughs> and my son is a, is a veterinarian surgeon and a research scientist. He has uh, over eight, nine patents and he's gotten multi-million dollar National Institute of Health grants and he's been doing real well. I'm so proud of him. And he too is on the introverted side, but nevertheless, he's just really just uh, amazing. And um, to this day, now that took about, about a year or so ago, it was right before COVID. To this day, I was talking to him and his plant is still living. He's got his one plant, but people will get off the elevator and, and look and it's like, it's like they don't know that he's supposed to be in this office. Is, is, is he there doing something else? Because he's in the lab a lot, obviously, and in surgery. So yeah, it's um they're getting used to him though. He's obviously getting invited <laughs> through the things. And it used to be, I don't know if they're doing this now, but anytime there was a brochure that needed to be made, they would call him up. Hey, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I know. And he got it. He's a sweet guy. You know, he got it. <laughs> Well, I am I'm really glad to know this part about you because I have a little four-legged son. And oh, yes. <laughs> good to know. Good to have connections, you know? We have connections, exactly. Yeah. And he is the heart, so the heart. Oh, my God. Talk about synchronicity. We yep. were just told that London has a heart murmur. Mm. So uh, well, you've we'll got talk. My number. You've got my number. You can bring yes. <laughs> yes, we'll talk after the show. Um, so... <laughs> I, I am still having trouble with the prophets as Jerome does. You know, uh, Sandra Quince was the person I was uh, thinking of. I could see where it's important to be able to say to your board and to your customers that you're solvent and you're doing well. And, and to make the argument that this is the right thing to do through profits. But it's somehow in my mind, it's still clouds the overall intent of DE and I. And I'm reminded of several things floated through my head just now. I'm reminded of now in this day and age, you know, my husband and I sit and we're watching TV and we're saying, there's an awful lot of commercials with people of color. When did this start? Right? <laughs> and and we go back to, it's my husband's argument is, oh, it always happened. And I said, oh, hell no. No, no, it didn't. Um, and so I said, so let me calculate, because I used to be in marketing, between the killing of Floyd and what we're seeing now, and how long it takes to change the commercial, to figure out when they started working on this shift, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there is a parallel between this. And it's almost like companies decided, well, if they can't do anything, and I know I'm going to get killed for this statement, they can't do as much as they like internally. Let's at least have the presence of DE&I. And so my husband said, but what happened to the white people? And I said, now, come on. <laughs> They're still there, but now you're seeing a, more of a balance, right? Um, and we also took note that in the transgender and the 
LBGTQ space. We're seeing more people in that category. So what I'm seeing is commercial. We know those of us that are in marketing that equals big, big dollars, especially advertising on TV that they're seeing that there is a positive investment in this either from a social perspective or through their bottom line. Now, it's an anthropology question, <laughs> but I'm curious to know if you're seeing what we're seeing, this increase. I don't have any. I don't have. I don't. I don't have any statistics or facts at my fingertips. But just as a uh, consumer and someone who I would say yes, absolutely, I know that it is a specific. Uh, within the U.S., there is a specific um, requirement for some to get federal contracts and other things to have an inclusive, you know. Um, um, vision and I mean not vision and inclusive um, marketing and, and so forth and so on. So, you know that's just what I and I'm and I too have been the same way with you. I've been noticing that you know when I was working for um, my first twenty years uh, in HR I was primarily in the entertainment industry, and um, some of the te television stations then um, were really wanting to say there was a big fight for pushing for having anchors and reporters in the field that reflected the communities of which they served and mm. now you see it all the time which is phenomenal I mean, it's fantastic i love it so because it makes sense to do that so when we're sitting watching television we want to see you know this the an array of people who we who we see every day so I, you know i have to interrupt you because i remember i remember a specific incident where a person of color i can't remember if it was nbc it was in new york was on the show and she decided to let her hair grow naturally and she was terminated. So that, that this is the beginning. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, you know, like that it's, uh, I've noticed it just kind of just walking through that it, it it's vacations, you know, marketing, uh, hotels, uh, all of that stuff. I mean, how can we, how can I decide to spend my money and put my money places when the product or service is not used by anybody that looks like me? Well, you know, Jeep made that mistake during the Super Bowl commercial. Yes. When they had Bruce Springsteen, and I was one who really talked about it a lot, um, talking about coming together of America. And there was no person of color in that entire commercial. And I said, what? What are we talking about here? know but i still i think it's still interesting that you can put people of color in commercials and you can put them in executive seats i would like to see the boards change yeah i would love to sit on a for-profit board because i'm so tired of seeing the same people you may have one person of color and that person of color has their pick of for-profit boards right mm -hmm. so we're still not accomplishing the absolute goal and i'm hoping your book i'm hoping that my coming out and speaking about this let's see more people of color sit on for-profit boards why is it that we only sit on non-for-profit boards let's share the wealth let's share the knowledge 
And I don't care if it's in that order or the flip order of that. <laughs> Ernie, you have a comment on this? I could see you're thinking deeply. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> doing my best. Uh, so, so two things. One is that I think tokenism eventually catches up with you. If, if you don't have real sincere sponsorship at the executive level for your DEI initiative, and, and you know, they're people with more interest and less interest and so on and so forth. But if, if you don't have a real um, champion and you're, you're checking boxes up and down the line and you're primarily involved in risk mitigation, the more that you display yourself publicly as a DEI champion, in a way, the, the, the more people are likely to hold, it, hold you to it and, and the higher your risk turns out to be. Um, so I, I think that the, the, the intent and the social justice component needs to go along with what you say that you're doing. And it's maybe even better to understate rather than to overstate, to understate and overdeliver exactly. uh, rather than to overstate and underdeliver, right? <laughs> And then yeah. the second one is I, I, I had my uh, global spidey sense uh, tingling a little bit while we were having this last phase of the discussion. And I just wanted to add that um, a, a common strategy, a, a natural strategy of, of many US-based DEI folks is to say it's about representation and particularly representation around, um, around race. And so when we go abroad, if we go to Europe, if we go to Asia Pacific, we should, we should measure and think about what the benchmarks are and then think about how can we um, do better relative to the benchmarks. And the first buzzsaw that you run into in France and Germany, you can't measure race. Uh, you can measure migration yeah. status, you can measure age, you can measure gender, but you can't even, you don't even have any metrics for race. Or in, in Asia Pacific, you can measure uh, age and, and um, uh, gender in most places, but race doesn't make any sense in US categories because everybody in Asia, by the way, half of the world's population is Asian. <laughs> and so <laughs> a meaningful category is nationality. Uh, and then within each of those nationalities, there are multiple ethnicities sometimes very much at odds with each other. And so, so if, if, we, if we then take this dilemma that you're looking at of the, you know, the, the, the for-profit impulse and the social justice impulse, we just have to make sure, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a good thing to be looking at, but we just have to make sure we look at it through that local lens and think about, well, let's, let's see in, in Singapore, What's the balance between, uh, and by the way, we can't talk about race in Singapore either because they had race riots decades ago, um, which resulted in a lot of people getting killed. And so it's a, it's a taboo topic, um, but you, you can make advances in terms of, um, of gender. Uh, you can make advances in terms of LGBTQ in the workplace. And so what's the, what's the local edge in terms of um, social justice, in terms of representation, and how can we get there and deal with that same dilemma in, in local terms? That's what I think we have to keep in, in, in front of us, even as we're, we're passionate and committed to issues that are very important and very local and very embedded in our own history and our own roots. Yeah, and I also wanna clarify something you said before about, I'm paraphrasing, walking the talk or talking the walk. And so really what we're saying is, let's not just talk about it, let's demonstrate it. 
you know, you take a look at Google and you think, oh, it's technology and everybody's, you know, on the same page in terms of DEI and or other technology companies. And then you find out under the sheets, well, what's going on with the algorithms, right? You know, that don't, don't support the true DEI space. And we have a comment coming in from Australia, from Kathy. She says, good morning from Australia. Early here, but great thinking to start the day. Lots of businesses here only just started thinking of how DEIB links to productivity and people feeling trust in the organization. So you know what? It's not just in Australia. It's all over. We This world is rethinking. And we see it. This sounds like a weird switch, but we've seen evidence of this coming out of COVID with the great resignation. The great resignation is not just because people are thinking about, is this where I want to spend my day working? If this company doesn't believe or have the same values that I have, is this where I want to be? It's not just about how much money I'm making. And what you're seeing with the, the cross uh, between the killing of Floyd and other pandemics is that people are saying, does this company represent my values? If my values are towards DEI, if my values are towards supporting the LBGTQ plus community, where's this company? And if this company is not walking the talk, I don't want to be here anymore. So we've seen a switch from employee rule, employment employer rule to employee rule by demonstrating what their beliefs are equaling the great resignation. And yes, Cheryl. You know, CB, um generational research that we can now call fact because it's been you know out there for a while tells us that the millennials and gen z is is mandating it yes. they um will not for the most part won't go work for a place that doesn't have some type of um i mean obviously i can't say everybody obviously but but right. th that's huge that's huge yes. what they're looking for the diversity the inclusion the all of that and with social media it's real hard to hide if you're not supporting this, because people being terminated for supporting their beliefs in, in examining things like algorithms, it's going to fly out to the public faster than ever before. And the public is realizing we have more than ever before purchasing power. Mm -hmm. We have enough if we hear enough about an organization to literally take down an organization. That's kind of scary. This cancer culture works in warp speed. And so I'm so glad that you've written this book as a guide to inclusion because there's so many organizations out there that need that. And again, I'm going to get on my soap opera here. We need to see people like myself and Cheryl in that board seat, in the for-profit board seat. And with that, I'm going to drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, CB. <laughs>
Um, it's been such a pleasure. We're way over time. In fact, we're late for another meeting, the three of us. But I've enjoyed this, and I want to I want to invite you back seriously to discuss more of the meat of what we're talking about. So Love thank you back. so much. Thank <laughs> you. Thank Thanks you for having us, CB. Thank you. Very rich conversation, guys. I just want to flash this again. I'm not supposed to promote, so I'm just waving away the bugs in my house, mosquitoes. <laughs> Thank you. And the little fruit gnats from my growing my parsley and avocados inside with the daylight. I am just waving them away. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, CB. So, okay, bye bugs. Bye, everyone. Right. Um, thank you Bye. so much. Tune in next week. Hey, remember to connect with me on LinkedIn to subscribe to my newsletter. The first one just came out. It's an in interview with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. It's terrific. Listen to it, subscribe, and we'll be back next week. Thank you so much, Cheryl and Ernie. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Hold on, guys, now. I forgot to um, ask Cheryl to stay on till I hit the button.